Medical students experience significant mental distress, including high rates of anxiety, alcohol use, depression, and suicidal ideation, and it's only gotten worse since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. The data also show that medical students don't always get care for these conditions when they need it. And as we found during a recent research study published in JAMA Internal Medicine, the reasons for this are not just stigma and fear of professional repercussions. With our colleagues, we found that insurance plans offered by U.S. medical schools have high out-of-network annual deductibles and out-of-pocket maximums, as well as significant cost sharing, which might dissuade students from accessing mental health care when they need it. That was Amelia Mercado, a second-year medical student at Baylor College of Medicine, and J. Wesley Boyd, professor of psychiatry and medical ethics at Baylor College of Medicine, and a lecturer on global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. They were reading from their recent first opinion essay on how health plans offered to students by U.S. medical schools fall short on mental health coverage. I'll bring you our conversation about mental health and med school after a quick break. Right now, millions of Americans are making important decisions about their healthcare coverage for next year. United Healthcare offers a couple tips to help you during this open enrollment period. First, know your enrollment dates. Employer plans typically select a time period in the fall for employees to choose their coverage. Enrollment for Medicare eligible participants runs from October 15th through December 7th. Second, Take time to understand the costs of each plan by comparing how much you pay each month, as well as deductibles, copays, and prescription drug coverage. For more tips, visit uhcopenenrollment.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Welcome, Amelia and Wesley. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So as you both said at the top of the episode, you recently conducted a study examining insurance plans offered by medical schools and their coverage of mental health. So what made you decide to look into that question specifically? So I actually was interested in that topic, but it it was kind of a roundabout way that we got there. Um, I, when I started medical school, I was feeling really bogged down in the heavy foundational classes. Um, and Dr. Boyd, he was teaching a class that I was taking called Intro to Health Policy. And he is quite a superstar at our medical school. Um, he's also very fired up about these topics as well. Um but I reached out to him and I said, hey, I'm feeling really bogged down in these heavy science classes. It's not really my passion. I'm much more passionate about health equity, health policy topics that you do a lot of research in. Could we have a meeting and just talk about some research ideas? And we had a meeting and talked about a few different topics. Um, didn't walk away with a solid idea yet, but he gave me a really solid piece of advice that I've actually told quite a few students since then. And it's just to observe the environment around you and write down anything that really pisses you off. 
Um, and one of the things that I saw was a lot of my peers struggling with mental health and then um, second to that, struggling with getting access to mental health services. And so we had a follow-up meeting discussing that topic and he had actually researched um, the, a similar topic about a decade ago um, and we thought it would be neat to see if anything has changed since COVID, given all of the um, mental health struggles that people experienced during the pandemic. So you conducted this study to look at what um, medical schools, the, those that offer MDs, offer to students in the healthcare plans that students can purchase. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you conducted the study and what you found? We started by looking at all of the U.S. allopathic medical schools, so excluding um, those in Puerto Rico and then also excluding DO schools. And then we, me and a team of two other students, we went online and tried to find the 2022 to 2023 insurance plan offered by medical schools for medical students. If we couldn't find it on the website, then we would call up a school and um, or email if the phone call wasn't successful. Um, so we ended up getting data on about 88% of schools. And then from the insurance plans, we went in and manually looked at each insurance plan and covered uh, and then recorded annual deductible, out-of-pocket maximums, as well as cost sharing for mental health services. And Wes, so as Amelia said, you had researched something sort of similar about a decade ago. How did the results compare to, um, to what you found this time? What we found about a decade ago was not very dissimilar, unfortunately, from what we found in our current study. Uh, and as Amelia said, we got together several times before undertaking this project. And the first step is always to see what literature is out there to make sure you're not duplicating anything. And in fact, what we found when we looked at the literature was that no one had updated our data from a little over a decade ago. So that was the impetus for, for this study. And um, what we found then and is, as I said, very similar to what we found this time, namely, there are lots of out-of-pocket expenses, high deductibles, and generally um, costs are, not surprisingly, much higher when you go out of network compared to when you go in network. If you're a medical student and want to get mental health care, uh, you might be inclined to do that closer to your home as opposed to where you are going to medical school. Uh, possibly for privacy reasons, but also especially if you ended up on an inpatient facility, you might want to be close to home. The problem there potentially is that you're probably much more likely to be out of network in your home area compared to being in network close to your medical school. And that, you know, those costs could be significant. And so you mentioned the privacy concerns here. Is this something you've heard from students that they're concerned that if they seek mental health treatment near where they go to medical school, they're going to end up, you know, seeing someone who teaches them or could supervise them? I think it's a, a real valid concern, um, especially if you're seeking therapy services at your home institution. Um, some of my peers, they've said, what if I'm seeing the same therapist as my partner or a friend that I'm talking about really sensitive information with, and I walk out of a therapy session and they're walking back in. Um, so I think there's the concern there. And then I just, I've heard anecdotally um, some students, unfortunately, having experiences where their private data has been shared across faculty. And so I think it is a real legitimate concern. Yeah. And I think what's happening here is really fascinating to me in some ways because it's very similar to 
what universities and colleges across the country are facing, right, in terms of a student mental health care crisis. But of course, when you're chaining the next generation of doctors, everything feels sort of more freighted. And I think you also have higher expectations, right, for their understanding of where students are coming from when they have concerns about privacy, that sort of thing. And now, as you mentioned just now, Amelia, and as you mentioned in the article, you've heard examples of information being shared um, when it might not have been appropriate to do so. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and how you think schools might be able to address the concerns around, say, a healthcare provider sharing information with a dean from the medical school? Yeah, a story that comes to mind, I heard anecdotally, um, a student who was supposed to receive time and a half for an examination that they were taking at their institution, they when they opened up the exam portal, they did not have time and a half, and it was instead just the normal time. They were really taken aback. They performed pretty poorly on the exam because of this. But after the exam was over, they received multiple emails from faculty at the institution um, apologizing for the mistake, and unfortunately, that student was not aware that so many faculty were aware of their diagnosis or accommodation, and that was really off-putting and um, a serious privacy concern for them. What really stands out to me about that example is that I would think most of the professors who reached out would say, well, we were just trying to help, right? You know, good intentions, but their good intentions ended up exposing how vulnerable people's privacy is when it comes to health matters, whether it's about a disability or about mental health. So, you know, what sorts of things would you like to see schools put in place to better protect student privacy here? I think we touch on it in the article, but employing more third-party organizations. Um, there's, for example, there's a company called Better Health that some, I saw some universities are starting to to use that service. And I think that just kind of adds the layer of protection for students. And I think that they would be a lot more willing to use um, therapy services if it was with a third party and not with someone actually at their home institution. And along those lines to ensure that students could access uh, mental health care from third parties, that's where having either no or very low cost uh, out-of-pocket expenses for students comes in really, uh, becomes really important. Yeah, because, you know, Medical students are already taking out just enormous loans, right, to to pay for their education. And so, you know, I think there's probably, on the one hand, the sense, well, you know, in for $300,000, in for $400,000, right? At a certain point, it almost seems like it doesn't make a difference. But, of course, it does make a huge difference um, when you're talking about co-payments of 40% versus 20%. So I'm really glad you mentioned the cost there um, in terms of help helping um make this all accessible. Um, Wes, I also wanted to ask you, you know, so as a psychiatrist and a faculty member, you know, how has the conversation around mental health in medical school changed um, during your time on on the faculty? Yeah, it's been, I can't believe I'm saying this, almost 30 years ago uh, when I graduated from medical school. So I really trained in in quite a different era. there was really, in my opinion, much more of a, you know, you need to be quiet, suck it up, do what you're told, don't complain. Um, And that was just the ethos in medical school. In fact, I had a dean about 20 years ago um, tell me, or I'm sorry, by way of a a second party, tell me that uh, at his medical school, there were no people with any mental health issues whatsoever. 
which I just found astoundingly um, ignorant, to put it mildly, because I happen to know a bunch of students in that medical school, but also just it defies reason uh, to even start to go there. But but I, I point that out because that was the era that I trained in and came through. And there was a lot of expectation of just do what you're told. And I don't want to hear about any problems. I feel like that's changed. There is a ton of talk. There has been in the last uh, decade and a half about physician burnout. And also that has trickled down into thinking about the health and well-being of medical students and other people who are still in their medical training, as well as practicing physicians. Yeah. And that reminds me of what you read early in the article, which is that, you know, medical students are at even higher risk than their peers for depression, anxiety, and burnout. Um, Wes, I'm curious why you think that might be. Uh, I think medical training is uh, extremely, extremely rigorous. The hours that you have to put into not only just to get to medical school, but to make it through medical school are, you know, very, very long. So even even the easiest days in medical school, it would probably be a very stressful day for most of the rest of people. So I think this, the training itself is very stressful. I think that folks who go into medicine tend to be uh, somewhat on the perfectionistic end. Um, and that's not a bad thing when it comes to providing excellent patient care, but it does certainly take a toll on the individual providers. Uh, and I can tell you that my biggest fear certainly when I was going through training, but, but all throughout my career has been, you know, you don't want to make a mistake. Um, and if you're in some professions or in certain situations, making a mistake could cost someone their lives. So the stakes are dramatically high. The people who go into medicine tend to be very high achieving, high performing people who have generally done really well uh, at whatever they've sort of gotten into. And then you get into a situation where you're in the middle of the pack, and you have people's lives in your hands, quite literally. So the, the stresses are really real. I don't think rates of anxiety and depression have changed in any significant way from when I was in training, but I think there is much more willingness to acknowledge when people are suffering anxiety, depression, and the other things that medical students and medical professionals are prone to. And Amelia, as a current student, does that all ring true to you as well? Yeah, I think the the point about students being perfectionists, um, that really, I echo that a lot. Um, I think that we're really hard on ourselves. And when we do make a mistake, we attribute it to who we are, or there's something wrong with us, or why can't we perform as well as everyone else? Um, and I think, unfortunately, the the way that you get to medical school, you often thrive if you are like that, like Dr. Boyd was saying. Um you thrive on just being able to push through things and, uh, and, um, attribute things to, I don't know. I, I think that we often take mistakes really personally and then, um, keep pushing ourselves to keep going. And, um, yeah, I think I, I really echo with a lot of, a lot of the points that he made. Amelia and I have spoken about, um, something you raised earlier, Tori, namely the issue of, uh, the fact that so many medical students go into such tremendous debt. And so uh, Amelia and I have talked about the, the health equity issue that, you know, the high deductibles, high out-of-pocket expenses, et cetera, that a lot of medical students are going to face if they end up seeking mental health treatment uh, disproportionately is going to impact uh, 
poor uh, students. So it's, it's very, very significant, the debt that people incur while going through medical school, lots of them. If you're incurring that much debt, it's going to really make you think twice, do I really want to add even more debt? I mean, the numbers become a little funny, as you said, but still every, you know, I was pinching pennies throughout my uh, every year of schooling. I was watching every single thing I, I ever spent. Yeah. And I, I'll add, um, I mean, cost in medical school is no joke. And I think just medicine in general, but um, I saw a piece in stat a while ago about burnout in medicine and how it often begins before we even get to medical school, just because the application process is so gruesome. And I think that also applies to finances as well. Um, people can spend up to thousands of dollars in undergrad alone prepping for the MCAT. And then um, I myself spent around $2,000 to $2,500 just applying to medical school and I was applying during a time where I didn't have to travel for interviewing. So I can't imagine pre-COVID when you had to travel. I, I can't imagine how expensive that was. Um, and then for some of us, we make the decision on where to go to medical school um, based on not just what's the best fit, but also who gave us the most money. Um, for example, I was interested in going out of state for medical school, but after applying and getting waitlisted at some places and seeing my financial aid package, I just realized that was not going to be a reality for me. Um, and then when we get to medical school, we take out money for tuition, for living, for professional development, um, and then maybe medical or mental health care. And so I think cost is a significant factor in a lot of decisions for students um, when it comes to professional development. Like if we can attend this conference um, that's out of state, or um, can I pursue this, this project that's in a different country? Um, we have a, a strong global health program at Baylor, for example, and if you wanna do a project um, in a different country, you have to fund it yourself. Um, or I feel like the list goes on. I think it's really easy after you ask yourself all these questions um, and all these opportunities that involve cost, mental and medical care can often fall at the bottom of the priority list. And this feels all the more acute, I guess I would say, because if perfectionism and, you know, the need to serve your patients is already starting to affect you when you're in medical school, if you're, you're already anxious about finances stemming from even before you were accepted to medical school, you know, then when you make it to residency, um, you know, the financial pressures are not exactly lessened. The perfectionism fears are not exactly lessened. Can you talk a little bit about how medical schools might be able to help better prepare students for the mental health challenges of going into training? I actually think they're doing a much better job now than they were when, uh, when I was going through training, um, there is a lot of talk about mental health and well-being. In fact, uh, Amelia just wrote to one of the deans at Baylor this morning, thanking her for um, letting students know that if they need mental health care, they really need to get it. Sort of putting it out there in the open. And Amelia, you can say more. But um, no, it, it's front and center and a lot of orientations around the country and for medical students these days. Whereas, again, when I was coming through, there was zero talk of, of any mental health. Yeah. So the email that Dr. Boyd is referencing, um, I actually sent one of our deans a paragraph out of our STAT article 
um, where we talked about how faculty need to be discussing mental health care more openly and also um, dispelling any myths around mental health care and potential repercussions for professionalism down the line. Um, earlier this year, we had an orientation for our second year, and our dean talked about how when we apply for jobs or when we apply for licensing, the sort of questions that we're going to get asked um, that involve mental health care. And she just kind of dispelled myths that it would have real um, repercussions for securing a job or licensing. And that actually inspired the paragraph that we wrote in the stat piece. And so I just wanted to thank her for that. So as you mentioned in the piece and as you answered just now, um, there's a lot of misunderstanding among medical students about what kind of mental health care could end up having career repercussions. So can you tell us a bit about what those concerns are and what the reality is? Yeah, I think a lot of us are just concerned that, I mean, even for example, right now, when you said in the beginning, if you have anything that you'd like to talk about, or if it's too personal, you don't have to share. But even in the back of my mind, I'm thinking if I did share, if I had a condition that I wanted to talk about or that I could share, would I be comfortable doing so knowing that future employers could potentially listen to this? And I think it is a real concern, um, even though the dean at my school is trying to dispel those myths. I think the stigma around mental health is still um, a strong concern among students for future employment um, and opportunities. Um, and what she actually did during our orientation was she put up uh, a picture of the paperwork that we have to fill out to apply for, I think it was licensing in Texas. And so we could actually see the questions that were asked. And the question that she pointed out was, um, are you, do you currently have a condition that you are not getting treat, treated for? And she just kind of walked through the the way that we answer that question, what it can really reveal, and the answer is it's not much. My takeaway from the piece was that medical students often think that if they get any mental health care coverage, that will make it impossible for them to be licensed. Um, is that what students seem to think, and is that true? I think that they're concerned that people won't take them seriously or that they have some sort of impairment to their ability to do their job. For me, it's it's more so, can I get the interview at the institution that I want to interview at for residency, or um, will an institution take me seriously if they know that I've had mental health care? I think those are the sort of questions that come into my mind is more just, I want to have all, I want to have access to all the different opportunities, and I don't want the fact that if I've had a mental health diagnosis or if I've had treatment, I don't want that to impair my ability to access all the different opportunities. I, I can actually speak to the kinds of questions that state licensing boards uh, ask and also uh, offer some hopeful news. Um, when I was originally applying for license all those years ago in Massachusetts, Massachusetts used to ask the question, have you ever seen a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist? Flat out. And I was in a psychiatry residency program where the expectation was you got to do your own therapy while you're in training to make sure you know as much about yourself as possible if you're gonna be doing this work. And so we all just lied on the question. Um, that question though is actually um, contrary to the Americans with Disabilities Act. So it violates the ADA um, because it's asking essentially, have you ever gotten any kind of treatment? So where things stand in the United States today, and Texas is on the good side of this, I believe, for the reasons uh, Amelia just said, the questions that you can legitimately ask, according to the ADA, our questions are like the following. Are you currently impaired 
by way of either mental health issue or substance use issue? Um, that is a legitimate question. Uh, my, uh, and again, I'm, no, I'm sorry, I didn't say this. I'm no expert on the ADA, but I, I have talked with a number of lawyers who are, and my understanding is you can ask questions about current impairment, but what you can't ask are questions like, have you ever been impaired? Have you ever received any kind of mental health care? Have you ever you know, gone to a, a rehab facility or a psychiatric hospital? Those questions are uh, essentially not permitted. And so there's been over the last really two decades, a huge shift in licensure, I'm sorry, licensing board questions for uh, purposes of licensure. And right now they're probably still about a third of the states in this country that are asking questions that I think would be violating the ADA. But, but what that means is the majority of states have been shifting, asking questions which are not the intrusive ones that are going, going to like dig up every single thing in your past. That said, I completely agree with uh, what Amelia said and implied. Namely, there is still, unfortunately, a lot of stigma around mental illness and around getting uh, treatment for mental illness of any sort. And uh, so I think I completely understand the students, you know, anxiety and caution around the implications of, of getting treatment here and now. Absolutely, which is just so, you know, counterproductive, it feels like, right? You know, I would rather see a physician who has had a mental illness or currently has one and is being treated and, and monitored than one who feels that they need to hide what they're experiencing. Absolutely. Um, now, Amelia, how are you starting to think about mental health and residency as you are, what, about two and a half years out from, from becoming a, a resident yourself? Yeah, it's a real concern. Um, I just went to a conference over the weekend and the the burning question everyone wanted to ask me was, um, where do you want to do residency? What institutions are you looking at? Um, I'm interested in pediatrics right now, but I'm sure that'll change a million times um, over the next year. But um, hearing about work-life balance in residency, I think that's the main concern for me. Uh, I really value my free time and being able to do things that I enjoy to reset. And it's such a concern that I actually emailed Dr. Boyd a few weeks ago asking if we could start another study looking at time off or work-life balance in residency and how that varies by program. Um, so it is a concern. And earlier I mentioned that I want to do a master's program um, and take a year off of medical school. That's mainly because I, I have some research topics that I want to dive a little bit more into, like understanding the student experience and potentially the, the resident experience. But also a small percentage is I want to delay um, residency as much as I can, <laughs> just because hearing how little time you have to, to spend with loved ones. Um, I, I'm interested in doing a master's in the UK. That's where my family lives. I want to spend a little bit more time with them before I commit the next three years of my life to living in the hospital, um, which is a privilege, but also, like I said, I, I really value my free time and spending time with loved ones. As you should. Can I offer a vignette that actually probably would do better uh, earlier in the, in the piece? But I, until three years ago when we moved to Houston, I always had a private practice. And in my private practice, I generally always saw a number of college students um, occasionally medical students. I always had a lot of doctors either in training or uh, who were attendings also as patients. But 
uh, many years ago, I was actually seeing a student from her freshman year in college, uh, starting near the end of her freshman year, and I saw her until she graduated. And she unfortunately was, uh, had a uh, very bad depression and had ended up being hospitalized a few times. And it was only when she was graduating, when I was standing next to one of the deans at the uh, college, at our own kids' elementary school graduation, so our kids were friends, so I'm just standing next to this dean because I know her, because our kids are in class together. And she says, hey, Wes, I really want to thank you for taking care of, uh, I'll just make up a name, Mary Smith. I'm like, what? She said, yeah, thank you. I said, you knew that I was seeing her for the last three and a half years? She said, everyone in the dean's office knew it. And, and I, was, I was really horrified for the student. Um, you know, that, that everyone in the, and so just echoes what Amelia was saying that, you know, is that the norm? I hope it's not the norm. I don't think it's the norm, but is it a possibility? It's obviously a very real possibility. Absolutely. It's really alarming. Um, and I hope that she's doing well now, the student, the former student, uh, Wes, I'm also just sort of curious what attitudes you see among your colleagues on the faculty, around mental health. You know, do you think that people are largely sort of joining you in thinking, you know, treat it now so it doesn't become a problem later? Or is there there's still a sort of sense among some people to sort of toughen up? We don't need doctors with depression. I think there are probably more physicians now who are concerned about the mental health and well-being generally of students and trainees but I think there's still a large swath of medicine that sort of feels like, you know, I had to be tough to get through it. Just, you know, suck it up and be quiet. And, and I just think there's a wide diversity of opinions among attendings about how important these kinds of things are. So I think we're getting close to having to wrap up. You've both spoken a bit about how changing healthcare insurance plans offered to medical students could be one really practical way to support students' mental health care. Um, you've spoken about um, better policies to protect privacy and clearer messaging from the administration about, you know, what seeking treatment may or may not mean for future job prospects. Are there any other really concrete changes you would like to see medical schools make to support med students' mental health? Earlier, we were talking about how schools are doing a better job and we're talking about mental health a lot more. And sometimes that takes form of having all these extra sessions to be on campus for. Um, like we've had quite a few seminars over um, health and well-being. And I think there's there's a balance to that. I think sometimes it's overdone and it can actually be harmful having students having to be there or not harmful, but I think a better use of time would just be giving that time back to students to allow them to, to go home and to rest. And um, as helpful as those sessions are, a better use of my time for my mental health would maybe be at home watching a TV show rather than having to be there in person. Um, so I think just maybe giving time back to students as much as they can. And I think preclinical curriculums have done a great job at noticing that it's not always beneficial to be on campus, both in terms of mental health and learning. Wes, what do you think? Well, I, I agree with Amelia. And I think that, um, you know, as bad as the pandemic has been on so many fronts, it has opened us up to 
working remotely. And I think it has caused folks to have more focus on their own health and well-being um, vis-a-vis their working situations. And I would hope that that would extend into medical training in ways that, that we can't really even know necessarily right now. It'll be interesting to see. Amelia Mercado and Jay Wesley Boyd, thank you so much for joining the First Opinion Podcast today. My pleasure. It's really nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Brook is our executive producer. And I would love to hear more from listeners about the podcast, what you like, what you don't like, or what your favorite recent read was. Um, I'm looking for more good stuff to read. You can email me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And I'd also like to mention a new STAT project that I'm highly involved with. It's called Connect, and it's only for STAT Plus subscribers. It's sort of like a LinkedIn for people who work in the life sciences, offering job postings, discussion forums, and a chance to hear something about the inner workings of STAT. If you're a subscriber, join us at connect.statnews.com. And if you're not, well, you should subscribe and then come by Connect. You'll be so glad you did. And last request, if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself.